Well, thank you, David, and thank you guys uh, for joining us as we keep on going uh, from our screen to your screen, going through the book of Acts, journeying together, you know, during this whole crazy season uh, that we're currently in. And how important it is that we keep going back to God's word, not just reading it, but allowing it to read us. And so we are on a journey through the book of Acts. And this whole journey started right outside Jerusalem when Jesus gave his big vision statement, not just for his disciples, but that is meant to also apply to his church, us now. And in that statement, which is also a summary, we could say, for all of Acts, he declared, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, a.k.a. messengers, heavenly ambassadors, starting off in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, for these nationalistic Jewish men looking for the kingdom of God to come to Israel, they expected Jesus to say Jerusalem and all Judea. Why? Because that's their people. But once you start saying Samaria, wait, Samaritans are half-breeds. Are they even worthy of the Messiah? And then when he says the ends of the earth, wait, that includes the pagan Gentiles. But oh yeah, Jesus is saying right here from the beginning, this is not going to be a national movement. This is going to to the nations. And so here we see, right there from the beginning, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes like wind and fire. Where? Jerusalem. 3,000, then 2,000 come to follow Christ. And as this movement grows, uh, the the high priest has has had enough, and persecution breaks out against the church. Which causes the ambassadors of Jesus, the witnesses, to scatter. But they carry the fire of God's Spirit with them. Not only throughout Judea, but that's right, also Samaria, which we hit on last week in Acts chapter 8. God didn't lie. This movement is crossing racial boundaries. Not to welcome Samaritans as second class citizens, but as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And now, if you are paying attention to the book of Acts and you remember Acts 1-8, you think, okay, we got Jerusalem, we got Judea, we got Samaria. What about the ends of the earth? Jesus, how is that going to happen? At that point, Jesus says, I got just the man for the job. To carry the gospel to the Gentile world. Well who Jesus? Who you got? It's got to be Peter the Bold. Or or maybe John the Beloved. Or or Barnabas the son of encouragement. And Jesus. Well. You remember Saul? Uh, I remember a Saul. (laughs) I mean the Saul I remember though is. Is a, is a self-righteous, murderous, bigoted, ultra-nationalistic uh, Pharisee who has been imprisoning Christians and killing them, including Stephen. Jesus says, uh, yep, that's my guy. And, <laughs> and I can imagine for those reading through the book of Acts, you're thinking, oh, Jesus, Jesus, that's some dark humor. Until you realize that he's not joking. That it is, in fact, Saul that he has picked to be the bridge between this movement that started in Jerusalem and take it to the Gentile world. Now, when we look back on our point of view in history, Saul makes a lot of sense. 
Because he was the perfect bridge between Jewish and Gentile worlds. He was born to a Jewish family, trained in the Torah, studied under the great rabbi Gamaliel. He knew the Jewish law front to back. But he was also born in a city of Tarsus, which is in uh, modern-day south-central Turkey. But at that time, it was a Roman city saturated in Greek culture. You see, Saul knew the Jewish world and the Gentile world in and out. He was the perfect guy. But if you're a Christian in that day, figuring out what is this movement doing, you're thinking to yourself, but you're forgetting something, Jesus. This guy's killing us. How can he be the guy? And as I was reading that this week, I thought, man, isn't it true? As the Lord said in Isaiah 55, 9, As for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we've been reading the book of Acts closely, then we're going to see this theme pop up over and over again. We should really get used to the fact that God rarely fits into our neat, tidy boxes of understanding. So, we're going to look today at the greatest conversion story in the history of the church in Acts chapter 9. Now, this story is so important to Luke that he actually records it Later on in Acts 22 and 26. In Acts 22, Paul is giving his story to a crowd in Jerusalem. Acts 26, he's giving his story before King Agrippa. I'll be grabbing a few details from those as well to help us understand what's going on. But if there's anything that I want you to see in this story today, it's that while the story is about Saul, it's not really about Saul. While he seems to be the main character, he's not the main actor. He is the one being acted upon. It is Jesus in his tireless grace who is acting upon Saul and his calloused, killing heart. And what we see is that Saul, who becomes Paul, becomes known as the Apostle of Grace. He mentions the word grace over a hundred times throughout his letters. And his understanding of grace all begins here. And for us, how is it that God leads any of us from being hopeless to forgiven, from broken to healed, arrogant to humble, shame-ridden to loved? It's only a savior of tireless grace would keep pursuing us until our hearts are completely his. We're going to see how God's grace really does change us. But before we jump in and read this story together, will you pray these words after me and say, God, show me your grace. Open my eyes to where you are at work in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Follow with me as I read this. And man, what an amazing story. So, So dig in here closely. And as I read it, look for evidence of God's grace. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. 
Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, being the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he, replied, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. How could God possibly take a man who has been killing Christians and soften a heart like that? It doesn't make sense until we start grappling with what God's grace is. See, grace, God's grace, is simply... His favor shown to us that we have neither deserved nor earned. For those of us trained in our society with merit-based thinking, thinking that we, everything we have is something we have deserved or earned or worked for, grace confounds us. How do you know if you're starting to understand what grace is? Well, in the beginning you're going to realize how much you really just don't understand it. But when God's grace grips us, it changes us. And we see the way that the grace of Jesus only can take a blood-drenched rock heart like Saul's and open it like a flower to the sun. Only the grace of God can turn self-righteousness into humility, entitlement into gratitude, empty religion into a vibrant relationship. And Trinity, given all the pain and brokenness that we've been experiencing as a society this past week, don't we all need to drink deep of his grace today? I do. But how does it work? How does God work by his grace to change us? 
people first. If you're following along with the notes on the app, write this down. When we want to push Jesus away, only grace would relentlessly pursue us. We look at the story. Saul was a man obsessed with destroying the followers of Jesus. I can imagine his own thoughts were something like this. Couldn't these disciples of Jesus see how deceived they are to follow this, this, this rogue Jewish rabbi? And thankfully, the honorable high priest put this false Messiah to death. But these followers of his, these blasphemers, were still a threat to Judaism. And so Saul, being one who knew the law front to back, studied, like I said, under the great rabbi Gamaliel, became passionate about making sure that the blasphemers were not able to continue. And as an up-and-coming Pharisee, Saul recognized an opportunity that he's thinking back to prophets like Elijah who killed all the prophets of Baal with a sword. He's thinking back uh, to, to even the Maccabees, uh, which were in the intertestamental period, and, and Mattathias, who put all these rogue Jews to death. And he's thinking, I'm going to get my name in the Bible too. I'm going to make a name for myself. So first, he starts with Stephen, the first martyr. And then he moves from house to house. It says, ravaging the church, pulling Christians out of their homes and throwing them in prison. Recounting this story to King Agrippa later on, he said that he was caught in a raging fury, doing whatever he could to try to get them to blaspheme. And in Acts 9, verse 1, he is like the snarling wolf over these sheep, breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. And not just in Jerusalem, no. He goes to the high priest and he says, give me a letter. Because I want to go to the synagogues in, in the foreign city, the Syrian city of Damascus, and even find them there and drag them back. So while to the eyes Saul had these fancy robes on, and he had all the religious phrases and platitudes. At heart, he was a beast. A beast. But no matter how closed a heart may be, the grace of Jesus never grows exhausted. When Saul, actually Paul at this point, was recounting to King Agrippa, in Acts 26. And he tells King Agrippa when Jesus called him. He gives a strange phrase. He says, Jesus said this strange thing to him, which he includes in chapter 26, but we don't see in, 20, in, cha in chapter 9. And Jesus says to Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> what, what in the world does that mean? And why am I even bringing that up? See, a goad, as you see in the picture on the screen, is a sharp-tipped iron or a sharp iron-tipped tool that was used to poke and prod an ox in order to guide that beast where it was meant to go. 
See, with small jabs, not enough to scar or or harm the animal, it would make the animal uncomfortable enough to steer it in the right direction. Maybe you get where I'm going with this. But see, when an ox rebelled against its master, and it did not want to be uncomfortable, it would kick against the goad, it said, which often made the goad hurt even more. My point is, that what even before the road to Damascus, we see Jesus was pursuing the beastly heart of Saul. When Saul deserved to be condemned right away for all of his actions, instead the grace of God was poking, prodding, pursuing, making him uncomfortable, leading him. When Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin, Saul was there. When Stephen's face shone like an angel, and he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God, Saul was there. When he saw Stephen, before he took his final breath, say, Lord, forgive them, or do not hold their sin against them, Saul heard that. Every time Saul tried to get a Christian to blaspheme, and they refused to deny Jesus, Saul was there. And each time it was a a poke, a prod against that hard heart of his. I can even imagine that there was something about Jesus in all of this that attracted Saul. But it was almost kind of like, you know that girl who really likes a guy, who doesn't want to admit that she actually likes the guy, and every time you ask her if she likes the guy, she says, no, not at all, because she's trying to convince herself that she doesn't like him. I kind of see Saul working in the same way, that he was so obsessed with persecuting the Christians because there was something about Jesus that he was kept just trying to push away, push away, push away. It kept poking, prodding the spiritual goad of Jesus. See, in his grace, God will make us uncomfortable, if necessary, until he gets our attention. We often talk about God like, oh, I found God. (laughs) But when you read stories like this, it kind of makes me chuckle because before any of us ever find God, do we realize how much he's already been pursuing you? In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis tells about his own conversion story. And he describes it like before he came to Christ... It's like he was playing chess with the divine chess master, trying to outmaneuver God, but God the whole time was working the situation until finally Lewis was cornered. Checkmate. You know, we're all born with this sinful nature that by default wants to believe that I'm actually in control of things, that that I actually am good enough, that I am strong enough, that I have all the answers, that I really deserve all all that I have. In other words, I don't need grace. Grace and salvation, that's for weak people who need saving, not me. But when our conscience, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, starts poking at the feelings of emptiness, guilt, 
hypocrisy, woundedness, anger, and the fear in our souls. Sometimes we want to kick back, and we kick back by, by, by just getting busy and ignoring it, by, by blaming other people, by saying, well, at least I'm not like that guy, or trying to just, just work harder to be good enough on our own. The Holy Spirit is pursuing. We keep pushing away, pushing away. And even as Christians, we can fall into this pattern, don't we? When Jesus challenges our past wounds, when he wants to unearth our false comforts or our false ways of viewing ourselves or God or our preconceived notions about the way the world is, and we still want to kick back against God, frankly, because, because we still believe that our fear is safe or that our selfish ambition is exciting, or maybe my way still is the best way. And the whole time, the divine chess player, in his grace and love, is moving the circumstances of life until it's checkmate. And yes, this means that sometimes God, by his grace, will use pain when necessary to get our attention. And oftentimes we're so convinced that we're good enough, smart enough, strong enough until the pain of life finally leads us to his favor that is undeserved and his love that is limitless. And then, so when Saul is going to Damascus for one reason, Jesus is clearly leading him there for another reason. Which leads us to our next realization about how the grace of God works in our lives. Second, when we would rather keep our shame hidden, grace must expose it. When I would rather keep the dark parts of my heart that I don't want to recognize shoved away, grace must expose it. And I have to say this, because when God does at certain points in our lives, reveal the pride, the selfishness, the hypocrisy in us. It doesn't feel like grace at all, does it? It hurts. It's painful. It feels like that you were just sleeping in a nice, comfortable, dark room, and all of a sudden someone comes in there and turns the lights on. You're like, what are you doing? It seems cruel when the Holy Spirit comes on. He says, all right, it's time to get up. It's time to look at these things that I want to do. But do we realize the reason why he's getting us up is because he's leading us to fully live. So Saul and his murderous caravan are booking it through the desert right outside Damascus. That says that they're even traveling in midday, which is too hot for most people to travel. But that's how ambitious they were. Until Jesus turns the light on in a big way. And you can see on this map generally how far he had to go. It was about a week's journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. But in that moment, the glorified, resurrected Jesus appears to him and calls him out. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And after Saul can, can gather his words enough to ask who it is, I can't imagine how shocked he is to hear the answer. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. By the way, little parentheses here. 
This, is, this story is one of the reasons why I believe the New Testament. And why it's evidence to me that this is true. Because how else can you take a man like Saul and turn him into Paul unless an event like this did happen? Anyway, close parentheses. So when Jesus shows up and he realizes this is Jesus in front of him, I can imagine Saul is thinking, uh-oh, uh, he's actually alive, number one. And number two, he's taking it personally uh, that I have been persecuting his people, his followers. And of course he would, right? Because, I mean, this is, it's, Paul later on calls the church the body of Christ. The head is ticked because Saul has taken it out on the body. But again, what a picture of undeserved mercy and grace. Because if Jesus were showing up in Acts 9 to Saul for any reason other than grace, Saul would have been a dead man. Why? Because remember, Saul is public enemy number one of the church. And Jesus is the king. What would it take for him to go, boom, dead? And just over. Instead of taking him out, Jesus calls him by name. And he exposes his vile heart. Now, Jesus doesn't try to downplay Saul's sin at all. He doesn't say, Saul, you're not being very nice. He calls it exactly what it is. His words are razor sharp when he says, you are persecuting me. And when Saul gets up from this experience, everything is dark. For three straight days, this strong, competent, brilliant Pharisee is weak, dependent, blind. The grace of Jesus has brought this brilliant, self-righteous, bigoted Pharisee to the end of himself to the end of his own self-justifications, his excuses, his resources. See, grace must bring us to the end of ourselves before it can change us. As far back as the Garden of Eden, human beings have been trying to hide and cover over and make excuses for our sin, our shame, and our weakness. It is very natural It is a default of our nature. We're masters at not just putting on faces for other people, but even putting on faces for ourselves, trying to convince ourselves of who we are. But God is not interested in our faces. He's interested in our hearts. And a Damascus Road experience is when we realize that that no matter how much money we have, talent or resources, that none of these things can fix the anger, the pride, or the restlessness of our souls. That an experience like this, it might be the moment that you realize your marriage is on the brink, or that your addiction is now starting to to affect your family, or an emotional breakdown. But we've all had those points in our lives where we get to the end of ourselves. I mean, how many of us during this whole COVID season haven't felt like that at some point? Haven't felt like this just like, I'm done. And we start, it starts to unearth these things in us. It exposes our fear. It exposes our impatience, our entitlements. 
Or maybe it's just done that to me. I don't know. But it's when we get to this place where we realize just how out of control we are and how we've reached the end of ourselves. And we now see these areas in our hearts that we've worked really hard at trying to cover over. This is actually an act of grace. Now, when we see these things in our hearts, oftentimes our first intuition is not to say, oh gosh, God, yeah, I give my heart to you. Oftentimes our first reaction is to fall into a pit of self-pity, is to start blaming somebody else, is to try to keep kicking against the goads, so to speak. And this doesn't feel like grace. This feels cold. This feels cruel. This feels dark. But it's in the helpless moments when we often realize that Jesus has been calling your name. Jesus says to us, when we reach these places, when we finally checkmate, he says, do you realize now, Kirk, David, Shelby, Hannah, do you realize now That your money, your resources, your time, your talents, your brilliance, all those things are gifts I've given to you, but none of those things can stand up anymore. None of those things have the ability to be your foundation. None of those things can hold you up, can change you, can lead you. And this is exactly where Saul was. In this house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. A humbled man. And in the pain, Christ brought Saul low. But it was in that moment where I think Saul experienced what it was to be with Christ. It's interesting to me that just as Christ died for our sin and was in the grave for three days, so Saul realized his sin and was in darkness for three days. Why? Because this was a picture for Saul that for him to truly live, he must first be crucified with Christ. That in that low, dark moment that Christ was with him and that he was guiding him. And perhaps he had never in his life felt so close to God than in that moment. His heart may have been exposed and it may have been painful to get there. But Christ was emptying him of all his self-reliance so that in exposing his heart... He might hear Jesus say, follow me. Follow me. And only after the grace of God pursues us and exposes us, then third, as those crucified with Christ, God's grace resurrects us toward his purpose for our lives. One of the most famous words that Paul ever penned come from Galatians 2.20. Where he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's after the low point that Christ begins to rise him up. So after Saul was blinded, there was a disciple of Jesus in Damascus named Ananias who... Could this be ironic? 
Probably not. Ananias' name means the Lord is gracious. And he tells Ananias, go, because I'm going to give Saul his sight back. And of course, Ananias says, uh, but what? <laughs> like, I, I know who this guy is. <laughs> and uh, surely, God, you do too. And if, if we can realize this, like Ananias, this was really personal for him. Because it was some of his Christian brothers and sisters who have been widowed or orphaned because of this man. Can you imagine the pain of that? But graciously, the Lord responds to Ananias. He says, Ananias, he's my chosen instrument. Or, or the word there is, could also be translated vessel. He's my chosen vessel. And a vessel was really like a cup in that day. That a cup that has been completely emptied at this point of all self. And he says, and I'm about to fill that cup with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to carry my name to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel. And with a faith that blows me away, Ananias goes, he obeys God, and he shows up before this helpless man, and the first two words he utters are what? Brother Saul. Saul deserved a lot of names. Brother was not one of them. You know, today, everyone's brother or bro, right? But in that day, brother was only used for biological siblings or when the Christians, when this church movement began, they began calling one another brother as the family of God. So you see, when Ananias shows up and says, brother, Saul... He's not just saying, I forgive you. He says, Saul, you're one of us in Christ. His arms were open to him. And then with Ananias' hands on him, verse 18, the Holy Spirit filled this empty chosen vessel and something like scales fell off Saul's eyes as a sign that he could truly see for the first time. People of God, there is no one too impossible for Christ to reach. Who are those faces, those names that you think, ah, there's no way they would ever turn their life over to Christ? Who's to say the grace of God is not pursuing them now, cornering them now, bringing them to a place of checkmate? And this is the moment we have as a church to be ready at all times to open our arms and receive them. You know, there's an interesting story in the history of our own church. Maybe you've heard it before, but when this church first got started back in the early 1800s, 1817 is when this church began as the First Baptist Church in North Reading. Well, there were some people in North Reading who did not like this new church movement, one of which was a guy named William Bowen. And we think it's probably around the 1820s. William Bowen led multiple protests with torches, sometimes rotten eggs, against our, our church. Again, 200 years ago, but our church. But we have also in the history logs of the church that William Bowen also was a, later, a leader in the church. Meaning that something happened in William Bowen's heart and life. That God was somehow in the midst of these events of protesting this church. That God was working and pursuing his heart. 
And as William Bowen met the grace and the love and he heard the songs of the church, his own heart melted. And it was our forefathers who said, hey, because of the grace that we've received, we extend that same thing to you who was once our enemy. You are our brother. What a picture of the church, huh? That's part of our story. It's part of our story. And when we look at Saul's conversion story, which is really a story about the amazing grace of God, this is a picture for us that there is no path to the life of Jesus except through surrender. And the only way that God could use this man when Saul was when Saul was willing to concede defeat at the hands of divine grace. There's no shortcut around surrender to God's new life. We have to go through crucifying our old self, being exposed, and then being forgiven. That means to follow Christ first and foremost. I have to ask, have you sincerely admitted, I don't care how long you've been coming to Trinity, or whether you're a part of a thousand things, have you ever said, God, I see my selfishness, my pride, and my sin that is within me. I need your grace. Have you ever sincerely given that to him? See, we have this, we love to measure our goodness against one another because it makes us look better. But comparing our goodness to each other is like comparing one criminal to another. It doesn't matter. They're both convicted. But Christ measures our hearts against his. And when we start to get honest about our own motives, we see, man, oh, we all need forgiveness. We all need his new life. But as Paul wrote in Romans 3, we've all turned aside and become corrupt. But the amazing news of Jesus, which again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is that he who never sinned took our sin upon himself on the cross and died to forgive us once and for all and then rose from the dead. And the promise is that all who confess our sin and believe in him and open our hearts to his grace, his new life is ours. Have you ever done that? You can today. Maybe you see the ways that God has been poking and prodding at your heart for a long time. And you realize that, gosh, I don't think I've ever understood grace in my life. Now is the moment when you can say, God, I can't believe it, but I can't receive it. Well, you can believe it, but I can't believe this is for me. But once it dawns on us that it is... And he begins his transforming work in our hearts and our minds. And for those of us who have walked with Jesus for a while, it's easy to forget how our relationship with him began. It's easy for us to slip back into hiding, ignoring, avoiding the dark motives in our hearts. But I want to encourage us as a church in a moment, we're going to take communion. And every time we take communion, we pause to just say, God, search my heart and my mind. 
Allow this to be a moment before we receive the forgiveness of God where we say, Lord, am I paying attention to you? How are you trying to get my attention? Is there something in my heart that you've been trying to expose for a while that you want me just to confess and lay down? When I look at our nation and I see all that is going on I, and, and the pain, I can't help but to wonder, Lord, are you trying to turn the lights on of the church? The whole church? Are you trying to get our attention so that we come before you recognizing we have nothing? It doesn't matter how well we preach. It doesn't matter what kind of services we put on online. It doesn't matter all our talents, money, resources. If our hearts are not surrendered to his, his church does not move forward. He moves forward because we have confessed and given our hearts over to him, church. If he is, let us lay our hearts before him. Laying them down, knowing that as we are crucified with Christ, we receive his resurrection life. God, I believe, is doing a movement. All the, the chaos, the squeezing that it feels like we're going, going on as a nation right now. Could that be God and his grace waiting for us, his people, to respond with open hearts? Only a Savior of tireless grace would keep pursuing us until our hearts were completely His. Will you pray with me? And then we're going to take communion together. Father God, this is your word. I, I don't know what else to do but then to just, just preach it. And God, you have been poking and prodding at my heart for so long. And this season for me has been one of those where I just feel like you have been exposing things in me that I've been ignoring in the normal day-to-day -day life. And God, I believe that this is part of your work drawing us to just total surrender before you. And even though it's painful, we recognize that it is your grace. And it is because you are leading us to become completely yours because you want to then do something remarkable through us may we be open trusting thank you for being patient with us thank you for being so kind to us thank you for giving your life for us and now as we prepare to celebrate communion together lord may you open our hearts and may we lay them before you as a purified people praising you and thanking you for what you've done on our behalf in jesus mighty name amen